Today's reading comes from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We had to break at least in there. Good. First, first time she read. That was, a, that was a long, that was a lot. Well, welcome to church this morning. It's good to see you all. Um, this is the first sermon in a brand new series. We've titled the series The, the Road Most Traveled, which I'll explain here in just a moment. It's a, this is a study on, on suffering in the book of 1 Peter, which I think is really going to be helpful. Um, the sermon today is titled from these verses, Conversion and Hope. Um, let me give you a brief kind of description or overview of the whole entire series, and hopefully it will kind of captivate you to want to kind of press through this a little bit with us together. Christianity can oftentimes be, appear to be a system of truth that actually takes people out of their lives. It's a system of truth, it's a worldview that causes us to think and to act as, as if there's a, a glorious outcome imminently coming in our world. We don't know for sure when that's going to happen, but we live thinking and acting on that reality. On the other hand, Christianity can be a, a system of truth that pushes you more profoundly into your life than you, into your day-to-day -day life than you ever thought possible. In other words, the instruction it gives you enables you to understand the various components of the world that you live in in a way that puts you in more intelligently and more intentionally than you ever, ever dreamt possible. Even to the end that it produces surprising results in our lives. And I think that there, there's a very real tension in that. And oftentimes, in the church today, we, we kind of swing to one side or the other 
rather than kind of seeing how those two things have to really be held in tension. In this series, we are actually considering the book of First Peter that has a, a remarkably credible message about suffering and the adversity that each of us face in our lives. We face it inevitably. There are some of you here this morning that are facing all kinds of trials, and some of you are relatively free from them. But given six months or a year from now, that could entirely change. And so all of us know that this is kind of an inevitable component to life where there's going to be seasons where we have to actually know what it is we think and how it is that we're going to act as we go, go through those seasons. And so the study is really talking about that inevitable component that we go through. So in that sense, it really is, it's not a road that's hardly ever traveled. It's a road that is virtually always traveled by each and every one of us. So in that sense, I want to ask you this question. How do you understand and face the circumstances in your life that don't go the way you expect them to? They don't turn out any, anything close to what you anticipated or even, even better. Does the way that you understand adversity cause you to see it as something that diminishes your life or expands your life? So I think what we're going to see through this, through this study is that there are various parts of our culture in its thinking, both Christian as well as non-Christian, that would cause you to see it as an opportunity to expand. Um, many of you know that I'm, I'm back in school, which is insane, I know. But um, So through June, I'm taking a whole bunch of classes on a new coaching system and I've been remarkably surprised at how much time they spend on teaching people how to view the challenges of their lives differently than they've ever viewed them before. Instead of seeing them as things that need to be avoided, this whole coaching model is built around embracing challenge and actually seeing it almost like a child when you learned how to ride a bike. If you were trying to ride a bike and you even fell and skinned your knee, it didn't prevent you from getting on it again. You kind of saw it as a trial that got you one step closer to being able to ride. And so there's an aspect of our world that sees this one way, but for some reason or another, I think our natural default system is to avoid it. We do not want to step into trials. We do not want to have to endure suffering. And it just seems like in spite of so much that's being said and even taught today about this, we still very much try to defer it. Now, the passage that we're looking at today <clears throat> sets actually what I believe is the whole thematic tone of the entire book of First Peter. Um, in the introduction, he addresses Christians that were at that point considered to be exiles. They had been included in what had been called the dispersion, and they had been scattered like billiard balls into different parts of the Roman Empire. And these are the ones that Peter is writing to. And so he's not writing to a group of people just in case. He was writing to people that were doubting their faith, and they didn't know what to believe in light of how harsh and how challenging the circumstances they were facing were. And so I believe the best dating of the letter is somewhere around the mid, 
um, 65 to 67, immediately before a global, in AD 64, November was when Nero declared Christianity an illegal religion in the empire. And so they're right on the cusp of this, this wave of persecution. And so Peter is writing to people that had been very, very familiar. And he addresses them as exiles, and he is addressing the very point of their confusion that they had been driven from their homes in this dispersion. Now, as Peter writes this instruction to them about their faith, he addresses a topic that has uncanny relevance to each of us because each of us, whether we're Christians or not, are going to go through this. Whether you're in the midst of it now or whether it's a year from now, you're going to have to decide what it is you think, how it is you're going to act, how it is you're going to live in a season of trial or even outright suffering. I think it's somewhat interesting when you take a step back from, from Christianity just in general and you examine human history, there, this tension that I'm already describing to you tends to keep the, the real discussions about suffering just off-center from our focus. And yet, it can't be kept there very far. Take, for instance, in our country, after the attacks of 9-11 that just shattered America's delusion of security, there was almost a single voice that rose from our society that said, where was God? And so there's something that happens when we go into trials of adversity that makes a connection about what we really think about God or don't think about God. Now, long before that, about 150 years before that, actually, in the late 1800s, the renowned atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, he scrambled to hold the West, hold Western philosophy together because he was the one that declared God was dead. But when you, when you look at the whole corpus of what he wrote, he spent a lot of time thinking about suffering. And he actually, before his death, he penned this, this, this statement that was actually, as he scrambled to hold Western philosophy together because it began to unravel with no God in the center piece of it. But this is what he wrote. I think it's surprisingly insightful. He said, what if pleasure and displeasure were so tied together that whoever wanted to have as much as possible of one must also have as much as possible of the other? That whoever wanted to learn to jubilate up to the heavens would also have to be prepared for depression unto death. You have the choice either as little displeasure as possible, a painlessness in brief, or as much displeasure as possible as the price for the growth of an abundance of subtle pleasures and joys that have rarely been relished yet. If you decide for the former and, diminish, and desire to diminish and lower the level of human pain, you also have to diminish and lower the level of their capacity for joy. That is an amazing, a surprisingly insightful understanding of suffering, particularly from a man who denied the existence of God. And he says you can't escape how these two are intertwined, pleasure and displeasure. And if you ever want to experience pleasure like few people do, 
you're going to have to prepare yourself to equally experience a measure of displeasure. Now, in this introduction, Peter is, his instruction about suffering includes two major components that we're going to look at. The first part is that conversion to Christianity stresses a sense of pro profound belonging. That's his first point. The second point that he deals with is that there's actually a hope in suffering which emphasizes a, cru a crucial as aspect of the process of human becoming. And so he, he puts these together in a really interesting way. So I want, I want us to start by looking, by looking into this conversion and the emphasis on profound belonging. In the introduction to the letter, Peter uses a, a, a grammatical nuance or style that is common throughout the Bible. It appears many, many different times. It's called a sandwich. And not that kind of sandwich, but he, he ins, his instruction about suffering occurs between two really profound descriptions of conversion. And there's a reason for that. We're going to try to kind of tease that out a little bit. And so there's two sections that are really kind of explaining this amazing wonder that conversion to Christianity brings into human existence. Now, both descriptions emphasize one of our greatest needs, our need to belong. And so when you begin to see those descriptions through that lens, it starts to bring, I think, some things into focus. Now, in verses 3 to 5, Peter, Peter gives the first half of the description by, by giving... He starts by giving honor to God the Father for the tremendous mercy that he extends Christians by, he says in verse 3, by causing us to be born again. And so he, he's striking a chord that's really interesting, and he, he's kind of cutting through our own perception or understanding of the circumstances that led us to faith in the gospel and Jesus. He's cutting right to the core, and he's giving honor to God because he caused you to believe. And so he's striking something here that I think is really worth considering, that, that it was the power of God that was acting according to his mercy that made you aware of your need. Without it, you would have never believed. You would have never come at all. And so he kind of pulls that out in these first couple of verses in, in verses 3 to 5. And then he further describes conversion to Christianity in terms of a family discussion when he refers to an inheritance. An inheritance comes as a part of belonging to a family. And he says, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And its place of preservation is, is that it's kept in heaven for you in verse 4 which assures us of God's unchangeable plan of cosmic redemption that is progressively working in human history. That's this reference in this first part of the sandwich. And so he, he's pushing this. And, 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 and then lastly, in this first, this first part of this, he reminds us that our salvation by God's power is being guarded, which was a military term, that to oversee or to post a watch to protect unforeseen loss. So why would he say that? Why, why would he go into that kind of detail of explaining what happens when you're converted in the profound belonging that God caused to come into existence according to his mercy? 
Now, the second part of the sandwich, the bottom part of the bun, if you wanted to consider it that way, occurs in verses 10 to 12. And we see this other aspect of the other half of his description that, that kind of depicts, again, this profound belonging. And in verses 10 to 12, he describes conversion to Christianity by, trying, by tying it to all of God's work in redemptive history. In other words, those of us who believe right now were being served by prophets who long to understand all that we understand. In other words, there's a convergence of revelation of God's purpose and all that he's doing that he ties into this sense of belonging. He says, it's almost like you were the privileged ones so that you get to experience this deep, and converging understanding of the truth to the extent that he says in verse 12, he says, angels long to look into this wonder. There's something about it that's so magnificent that not only did it cause the prophets to see just a small part that they were playing in moving the ball forward, so to speak, but even the angels are astounded by what is happening amongst you. And so he sandwiches it between this, this instruction occurs between these two pieces. And so again, the question is, why did he do it that way? What, what can we learn from understanding that? So he starts with these descriptions of conversion that emphasize and underscore profound belonging. And then secondly, we have this occurrence of in the middle of hope, which is actually in the process of human becoming. So in between those two glorious descriptions of profound belonging that conversion brings into life, he explains this theology of suffering in a way that shows it to be a process of becoming that will do one of two things. It won't do both. It will either turn you into an amazing, magnificent person or it will completely burn you to ashes. And so this occurs for a reason, I believe, between these two. Now, this is what he wrote in verses 6 to 9. I'm going to read this in your hearing. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have, you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Not only do you have the first imperative or the first directive that he gives that emerges here, he unpacks it in a way that I, I, it, it actually is confusing. This is the third time in 25 years that I've preached through this book. And I can tell you that as having studied in the original languages in Greek and Hebrew for nearly 30 years now, I have to admit that he shows there's two ways to look at this. There's a detailed theology and then kind of a simple one a simple analysis. And after all of this study and all of this time and even the experience of moving through it, I, I honestly don't know which is going to be the most 
accurate or the most profitable for you. And so I'm going to try to show you both of them and perhaps be able to kind of allow you to look into this, this lens of this theology that he's, he's explaining here from two completely different angles. Now, the detailed theology allows us to see five main points that are essential in facing suffering. I think they're very helpful. But it's, it's fairly detailed, and I'll move through it quickly. The first part of those points, the first one of them is that Suffering exposes our deepest faith assumptions. There's something about it that shows you what you really believe, not what you think you believe, but what you actually believe. In verse 6, when he says, In this you rejoice, though now you have been grieved. It's a reference back to the former statements of Christians, of a Christian's belonging this inheritance that he was talking about. And so after he says that this inheritance that you have, that's been given to you as a privilege of your conversion that God caused, you need to rejoice in that even though now. And so he's talking about something that happens to us when we are thrown into a circumstance of suffering. It's going to expose what we really believe, our deepest faith assumptions. And he creates this little space that, that he, that's not only are we being guarded by God himself, even in the midst of suffering, his basic premise that in spite of the pain, you have to be able to see it in a way that would cause you not to indulge it. In other words, he's, he's creating a broader bandwidth for it by what he's saying. And so as you go into it, you're going to find out what you really believe. And he said, you have to be careful that you have to, you have to be prepared to push through it rather than to allow yourself just to indulge it. The second part that he says, and I think this is really helpful, he says, suffering is temporary. Now, there's some of you in this room that have been afflicted by perhaps a disease. Perhaps some of you have have incurred some sort of irreversible financial calamity. You'll, you'll never have what you had before. Perhaps some of you have been involved in relational suffering that has left you relationally destitute. You're lonely. Now, there's some people, in the way that they would understand this text, that would, would cause it almost to belittle this kind of suffering because it's only a little while. But he's not talking about it that way. What he's talking about is a perspective that would make an entire lifetime of suffering a little while. In other words, he's kind of tensioning your mind to a point that includes eternity. And I can't tell you how many times that I've done this in counseling sessions to ask a person to say, okay, explain to me how it is that you perceive and understand what you're going through. And they can go and elaborate into the pain and the sorrow that they're experiencing. But when you ask them, I want you to think for a moment of a time 10,000 years from now. And say the two of us are sitting on a stump talking about all that we've experienced in all of that time. If Jesus were to come along and he were to hand you his scepter of his power, and he was able to say, I want you to go back and do whatever you want, do you think after 10,000 years of seeing how he does things, he would go back and change it? 
And there's very few people, there are some, but there's very few that say that they would come back. And I'll always ask them why. And they said, by then I'll understand more of all that the, prom the Bible promises to be true about this pain. And so the second point is that suffering is temporary. It isn't going to last forever. The third point is that suffering is painful. Now, as Christians, I think that we really need to embrace this because for some reason or another, there's a large constituency within Christianity that believes it's their job to deny the pain of suffering. It's almost as if they're pushing people into this pressure of smiling all the time. And when Peter says, you have been grieved, he is using a term of intense emotional import that simply means to be saddened, to be worried. And he's, he's admitting this. In other words, this third point is simply that you don't need to go through this denying that it hurts. It's not your job to act as if everything is fine. It's not your job to deny the fact that this situation has put you kind of over the edge without question. And your, your faith is now having to guide you. And so the third point is that it's painful. Now the fourth point, I believe, is the centerpiece of everything that he says in these 12 verses. And the fourth point is that suffering is the process of human becoming. The imagery that appears in the middle of Peter's explanation is at the very heart of this instruction. When he talks about the tested genuineness of your faith, that's like gold. Now he's referring to a process in the first century by which a goldsmith would have to, as he purified gold and tried to get it to release all the impurity that was trapped in it naturally. He couldn't fire it all at once to do it all at one time. And typically the process took up to seven times. And so every time he would do it, he would heat up the gold and he would allow the impurity to separate and to come to the top and the, whole gold, the pure, purest part of the gold would settle to the bottom. And he would scrape away, the term is the unapproved part. And the process wasn't exact, but he knew when he was done, when he fired the gold to its liquid form and he could look over the crucible and see the reflection of his own face. He said, that is what God is after. That's why he's doing this. And so this is this deep connection to our becoming that can't happen any other way. And even Nietzsche saw that. He, in one of the articles I read, he said, I don't bid the people that I love and care the most about a good life. He said, I bid them the circumstances that will cause them to be special. And so at the heart of this, he not only gives you a category that is sandwiched between these two profound disclosures about your belonging, he explains in the heart of it a process of becoming that turns you into your finest self. It enables you to see who you really are. And without it, you'll never see it. 
you'll never truly become. Now, the fifth part of this detailed outline, and I'll go through this quickly, is that suffering amplifies our faith assumptions. He started by saying it exposes it. And this is what we typically see. I, I, I can tell you in 25 years, I have seen literally hundreds of people when they're fired by suffering in this trial, in this crucible, they get angry and they walk away from God. And it's because this last point is tied to this strange statement. He says, you've never seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now, but you're looking forward to seeing him. What is he doing? I, I, I believe at its finest, what he is doing is referring to a faith that has already carried you safe thus far. He says, you've never laid your eyes on him. And so he's writing to non-eyewitnesses. They believed in Jesus just because of what they were told. And he says, you've never seen him, but you believe. And so he's talking about this aspect of faith that somehow is put under a microscope, under suffering. And he's expanding it to show. See, some of you believe that your philosophy of suffering, when I asked you earlier, your philosophy of suffering goes about as far as to say, I just need to power through this. I know because I get your emails asking me to pray it off. You're trying to draw as many voices into concert. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, don't take me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for one another. But there's an aspect of this that betrays the fact that you don't want to endure another moment and you want God to remove his hand. That is a faith assumption when you just have to power through. And Peter offers a completely different lens. And when you actually trust God to say, I know his process of becoming, it's right and it's good. It allows your faith to be amplified, not in a negative way, but a positive way. Now, that's the detailed. That's the detailed theology. Let me give you a simple one, because if we were... It, it, Christianity in its initial outgrowth was almost entirely comprised of slaves, not very educated, there were some educated, with, highly educated, even within, within Christianity, but the majority wasn't. So if we were part of this dispersion, and we are living in some location because we had been driven from our homes, because we had the courage to believe the gospel, to take it deep into our hearts, and start being concerned about our fellow man, our faith in Jesus and our love for the gospel turned us into something that other people did not appreciate. And if we read or heard this letter read to us for the first time, we probably wouldn't have taken away a detailed theology. That doesn't mean that there aren't things to it, but I think what we would have taken away would have been fairly simple, and it might have been like this. Not only does our suffering not diminish our belonging, it actually, by God's design, engages us in a process of becoming that enables us to embrace it, believing that it will develop us into the very best human beings or people that we can be capable 
of continuing this walk of faith. Pretty simple. Now, in closing, I, I, I want to read a story to you that Jim Collins tells in his number one best-selling book, Good to Great. It's about corporate success. Eleven companies over all the history of the Fortune 500 that really made, made it through this breakthrough. But he tells this story in Good to Great about Admiral Jim Stockdale that I think captures the tension of what I'm trying to explain this morning and in a very practical way, it shows these very principles. Stockdale was the highest ranking US United States military officer in what they called the Hanoi Hilton, which was a prisoner camp, uh, prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. He was severely tortured more than 20 times during his eight year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973. Now, Collins, after he interviewed Stockdale, he called this the Stockdale Paradox. And this is what he wrote. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said, when I asked him. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. I didn't say anything for many minutes, and we continued the, the slow walk toward the faculty club, Stockdale limping and arc swinging his stiff, left, his stiff leg that never had fully recovered from the repeated torture. Finally, after about 100 meters of silence, I asked, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, he said, the optimist. The optimist? I don't understand, I said, now completely confused given what he had said 100 meters earlier. The optimist. Oh, there were the, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Another long pause and more walking. Then he turned and said, and said this to me. This is a, a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Collins finishes with a statement. He says, to this day I carry the mental image of Stockdale admonishing the optimist, quote, we're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. I, I, I believe that story, as I've already said, it, it has this eerie capacity to capture in a very practical way what Christianity requires us to maintain when we face seasons of suffering and adversity. If we lose, if we lose faith that the suffering is developing our character, as Stock, Stockdale said, to turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in 
retrospect, I would not change. It will destroy us. However, if we refuse to confront the brutal, the brutal facts of our, re, of our reality, whatever they might be, we will slip into what many of us have seen as a pathetic denial. There's unbelieving, unbelievably discrediting to what we claim to believe. It causes people to just step back and to say, I knew your faith was merely a crutch. It wasn't a boat that would sell you through that storm. But we see an entirely different explanation of it here. I think in one sense, the tension that Stockdale and Collins captured in what Peter wrote of so many years before requires an element of vulnerability from us. It causes us to be willing to allow people to see that it's not always okay. Our faith doesn't always make us. So we're clad in Kevlar and it doesn't hurt. Instead, it allows us to say, as Stockdale did, there's some brutal realities that I face every day. But I don't believe we ever have the courage to allow that to be seen by other people unless we're vulnerable, unless we really know what we believe. Peter's sandwich between those two descriptions of the profound belonging that has offered us in the conversion, our conversion to Christianity and the hope that we have in God's assurance that our suffering is an essential process of human becoming that leads us to be the best people that we can be. Those allow us to hold on to our faith while bravely admitting the brutal facts that we face day to day. The simple fact that God for reasons known only to him, requires us to do him the honor of going forward on his word by faith. I fear that there's not as much of that in our communities as we wish or need. I challenge you to be that brave, to have that kind of a faith. Let me take a couple of your questions and I'll be done. <clears throat> Does this letter from Peter speak only to suffering caused by persecution? Can we reasonably assume that his words apply to all suffering, including suffering caused by our own sin? Yeah, I believe you can. There's a couple of different places in the letter where he is going to tell you don't suffer as a wrongdoer. But that doesn't explain the fact in every way that you can just simply say, well, I really had it coming to me. Because if any of us take a step back and look with any kind of integrity at our life, we all have it coming. There is never a time that you're going to be able to step back 
and be able to see yourself completely innocent. Not even one. And so I don't think it's his point through the letter to cut it into these nice little boxes. But he will tell you, you need to do the best you can to avoid suffering for wrongdoing. It's a great question, and we'll be able to fill it out over the weeks, the weeks to come. Really good one. If pain is purposeful, how are we to discern when it is right to seek relief through common graces or prayerful pleas for deliverance? That is a profound question. I have found myself over the years, now, I have had a little bit of suffering in my life. Probably there's many of you in this room that have had more than I have. Um, I tried to make a smoke bomb when I was 11 years old. I was as honored as you might imagine, but it blew up and I lost my right eye. And what happened in those days was just remarkable because it, it took me from a status. I was a pretty good football player and my family had really good athletes throughout my family. And I couldn't catch a ball for three years. My father and my grandfathers were contractors and I couldn't hit a nail with a hammer for three years because my depth perception was completely lost. I had to wear a patch on my eye that year for almost an entire year before the prosthetic could, could be set. And that year I broke both the arches in my feet, so I had to wear these granny boots with prescription insoles. And then they discovered that I had two vertebrae that were kind of wacky on the bottom of my spine, so I had to wear this girdle with rods in it. And so I went from a person that was the most popular to the person that they teased the most. And I had no explanation. I knew that the smoke bomb was my fault. But that 12th year of my life, I can look back now and say, I probably learned more than I have in any one year of my life. In 2010, when the last time I preached through 1 Peter, I started it on a Sunday, like today, and I told myself I wasn't going to tell this story. My brother was killed on Wednesday, and I can remember going to my dad and I said, I don't think I can do this book right now. And he, he told me, not in a cavalier way at all, but he said, I think it's going to be good for you. And I've, the only way I can answer your question, if pain is purposeful, how are we to discern when it's right? to seek relief. I told you all of that so I can say this. Ask like a child. Let your request be made known as a child. And as a child, admit that he knows 
God knows what's best. He cares for you deeply. The inheritance that he's promised you is unfading, and it's guarded by his own power. You're not suffering loss at all through the pain. So ask him as a child. A child will simply say, Daddy, I, I don't see all that you see. But as your child, I would ask you to let this go away, that this person might be healed, that this other person might not die. But I don't know what you know. And out of that place, we can always keep our hands open. That's as close as I can get to that. Last question. How can we authentically meet people where they are in suffering and effectively lead them through it when we don't personally view their suffering as a big deal? Well, quite honestly, you can't. If you're feigning your concern, keep your mouth shut. But when you learn how to walk with people through their pain, through their suffering, if you can do it without breaking your heart, let me know, because I can't. And if you really do give a damn about your fellow man, I don't think you can do it without it getting to you. I don't think you can feign concern and trying to topically help them get better. I don't think Jesus was like that. I don't think, even though he knew this, he was like that. And as Christians, we should expect and be committed to do better. All right, good questions, by the way. Let's pray and uh, we'll get ready for communion. Man, if I was visiting here, Father, for the first day, I probably couldn't wait to get out of here. What a strange group of people that look at a scene that looks like it was torn out of a horror movie that sit around and discuss pain and suffering. I guess if I had been entirely weaned on happy music and wanting to feel my best, to bring forth my greatest energy. I wouldn't have any time for this either. But I, I truly believe that the people in this room and the people watching online or perhaps listening later, those that have gone through unforeseen suffering that just pounces on them like a lion in the bush. 
I think they want to understand this in a better way. I think Peter wanted people who who he already knew had been through more than many people could bear. He wanted them to know this profound belonging that your gospel offers to us. And yet he didn't want us only to dwell on that. He wanted us to know that in our suffering, there's a deep process of becoming that enables us to see our two selves. And without it, we'll always be a little bit less. So help us in this time that this might be a life-changing series. I pray that as we would take communion this morning, that we would take it seriously, that we would enable a testimony to go out because we take a broken piece of bread and dip it into a chalice of wine that depicts the broken body of our Savior and his blood shed for us. And we thereby testify that we stand among the rank and files of what the writer of Hebrews calls so great a cloud of witnesses. Help us too to stand. I ask your blessings upon these things, for we ask them in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.